So <clears throat> today we're going to be talking about worship as a weapon. And particularly uh, the role that music plays in that. And uh, I wouldn't be here without music. I wouldn't. Um, to explain my parents, well, my dad first met my mom at a youth camp in Ontario. And they were both 16. And they went for a walk together and in the woods. And on that walk, my mother began to sing. And my dad was quite taken back by her voice. And he was musically talented too, so they actually sang together. My dad liked her, they kept in touch, but my mom had other interests, and so life went on. And then about seven years later, my dad's sister was getting married. And uh, my dad's sister asked my dad to sing and play guitar at her wedding and said, you know, ask someone to come along and sing with you in that. And so he said, you know, there's, there's no one I'd rather sing with than that girl, Nancy Rule. So he called her up, and she came. She flew in, um, and when she stepped off the plane, she came off the plane carrying, if you can pull up the slide, um, one of these, oh, one of these, a 1970s boombox tape recorder. And she said, I bought this so that we could record a song together. So that night, they stayed up till three in the morning record, recording their first cassette, which they called Songs in the Night, and the rest is history. And this is the power that music had on my parents' relationship. I wouldn't be here without it. See, music is powerful. It brings people together like my parents. And music is also a powerful tool in, in memory therapy. As Sandra's brother, grandmother passed away a few months ago with Alzheimer's, and for most of the past year, she couldn't remember significant people in her life, very key events, nothing. Uh, but she could remember whole verses of songs. She could still sing the lines of her favorite hymns. And this is common in Alzheimer's because musical memory lasts so long. Um, music is also a motivator. Yesterday, there was a protest going down the street in front of my house, and they had big boom boxes to get kind of the people all amped up. When I was in elementary school, the... The gym teacher on a Monday morning would play, you know, YMCA to like get everybody roused up, right? Um, music can relieve stress. That's why they, you know, they play it in spas. Um, taking the Bible into consideration, we see music uh, as a motivator. And Daniel, think King Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's built a big golden statue for himself. Cue the music and all the people bow down. Or what about Saul, tormented, it says, by an evil spirit, and then David, filled with the Spirit, comes and plays for him and the Spirit leaves. You see, the, it's in the context of real spiritual warfare that music has this powerful influence. And music, they say, can also make babies dance in the womb. So music has this powerful effect on us. You will have noticed that to start, we, we use music here in this, this church as well. But why? Why do Christians use music as part of their their worship services? Is it because we want our babies to dance, to, to motivate ourselves, to, to psych ourselves up for the game of life? Is it like that catchy song you might have heard on the radio a few years ago? <laughs> Hence, my very original sermon title, Worship Our Fight Song. <laughs> I'd like to say that while we're amping ourselves up, 
might be the effect of music, a sort of secondary spinoff. The primary reason we use music here is different. I want to say it's greater. And I want to, the primary reason we use music is that we were made to worship God. And we have been given music as a powerful means to achieving that end. So we use music because we were made to worship God. And we have been given music as a powerful means to achieving that end. We were made to worship. In fact, this is the series we're in. Before Easter, Dwight spoke a few times on worship. And this week we're speaking on worship, our fight song, that music is this powerful weapon. But first, let's recap. What is worship? Well, the, the word that we translate worship in Greek is proskuno, which means to, to bow down, to bend the knee, to prostrate oneself. Now, bowing is this physical gesture that demonstrated that that person over you was sovereign and of greater authority. And you, in turn, were a faithful and loyal subject. So this is what worship is. It's a posture of life that says, you are sovereign and you are worthy, and I am faithful and loyal to you. But then why do we worship? Well, we worship because everyone bends the knee to something. But we want to worship what's worth it or who's worth it. If you're thinking, well, I don't bow the knee to anyone. I wouldn't bow the knee to, let's say, uh, Queen Elizabeth. But maybe you do bow at the altar of money. Maybe you do bow at the altar of family or grades. They can become lords over you, capturing your affections. And this too is worship. But as Christians, we worship God because we believe that he is greater than money and power and grades, that Jesus is king. And he is the one who has captured the affections of our hearts by his sacrificial love for us. This is why we worship. So obviously worship then is more than just singing a few songs on a Sunday morning. It's our whole lives given in response to King Jesus's initiating love for us. We're acknowledging that he is sovereign and has authority over us and we are faithful and loyal to him. Worship then affects everything about us. It affects how we schedule a time. It affects how we spend the bills in our wallet. It affects how we treat others. You see, worship redirects the posture of our lives. And today I want to look at a particular element of worship. And I want to go there by asking this question. Why do we use music as part of our worship? Why do we use music as part of our worship? To answer this, we're going to be looking at a passage in Second Chronicles. Now, this morning, Sandra read from Psalm 136, and I asked her to do that because this is the song that is sung as part of this story in Chronicles. So for context, the book of Chronicles, in the, in the Jewish Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, it actually comes at the end. And it comes at the end because it's, it's a book that reflects back on his, uh, Israel's history. It's a co- sort of a compilation of, of character studies of the kings, of the kings who were faithful, of the kings who were disobedient. And we're going to be looking at the king of Jerusalem, Jehoshaphat, who was a faithful king. He tried to do the right thing. And much of Jehoshaphat's reign was sort of trying to protect his land from enemy invasion. And so our text starts with this reality. The king has just learned that there are three nations around them who have declared war and they're now on the march against him. So let's begin our reading. Second Chronicles 20 and verse two. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, 
A great multitude is coming against you from Eden, from beyond the sea, and behold, they're at Hazan Tamar, that is in Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he set his face to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord, and all the cities of Judah came to seek the Lord. You notice that when Jehoshaphat is afraid, he sets his face to seek the Lord. When you're afraid, who do you seek? Do you try and face it alone? Let's keep reading. And Jehoshaphat stood in the, uh, in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. This is pretty hard to imagine, isn't it? Your watchmen have reported that there are three enemy armies coming in on you, closing in on your city. Your situation seems helpless. Like if nothing happens soon, you as king, your life is gonna be ended in some sort of spectacular, horrific death. And they're gonna take over the city. They're gonna burn it. They're gonna pillage it. They're gonna take your people captives. Forget Talus. The future isn't friendly. It's terrifying. <laughs> But what does the king do when he's confronted with this reality? He chooses to call the whole people together, to assemble them together in an act of worship. You could say that this is King Jehoshaphat's call to worship. It's, a, it's what Nadine did if you're here at, at 10 a.m. Jehoshaphat seeks the face of the Lord. And what does he see? What does he see? He's reminded who God is. And so that's the first reason why we worship. See, worship helps us recall who God is. It helps us recall God's word. And Jehoshaphat prays, are you not God in heaven? You rule over the kingdoms of the nations. And so it's important for context to recognize that these nations attacking believed in regional gods, gods whose their power was limited by the, the domain of their land, by the scope of their land. But Jehoshaphat is calling on the God in, in heaven, the king of all the kingdoms. He goes on, in your hand are power and might, not in the hand of Ammon or Moab or Mount Seir, but in God's hand are power and might, and none is able to withstand you. And so as Jehoshaphat sees the face of the Lord, he seeks it, he recalls who God is. And then he goes on to recall what God has done. Verse seven, did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land? This is what God had done for them. And goes on, before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend. So that's what God has done. And now this is who they are in the light of what God has done. They can say to God, we are your people. We are friends of God. And as they looked on God, as they recalled who he was, as they remembered what he'd done for them in the past, something began to change. Hope and peace and courage began to stir in their hearts and their perspective shifted. Do you remember Paul and Silas in jail? They're put in jail for faith in Jesus and they're singing for joy right through the night. You know, this week I was reading a blog written by a former prisoner uh, under a communist regime, uh, regime for being a follower of Jesus. Uh, and in his blog, he, he was writing, reflecting on his times in prison. And he wrote this. 
we discovered that chains are splendid musical instruments. We clang them together in rhyme. We could sing, this is the day, clank, clank. This is the day, clank, clank, that the Lord has made, clank, clank. <laughs> Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And the reality is that for some of you this morning, you might be feeling totally spent. Singing for joy at the jails you face seems like the furthest thing from reality. Closing in on you are work deadlines you have to meet, bills you can't pay, sicknesses you can't treat. You may have crippling questions in your head. You made it to church this morning, but you're limping. This is why we're here to worship. I grew up singing this song, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this life will grow strangely dim and the light of his glory and grace. You see, worship helps us turn our eyes on Jesus, to seek his face, to recall his word, and when we look to Jesus instead of our circumstances, it begins to shift our perspective. Let's read on. Our God, this is his prayer. Will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. This is the perspective of a worshiper of God. Total humble dependence on God. This is how you may feel. I know this is how the leaders of this church often feel. And it is from this place, total humble dependence that we worship. And it goes on. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before their Lord with the little ones, their wives, and their children. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jeel, the son of Mattaniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. The Levites were this tribe assigned to be priests of God on behalf of the people. And here the spirit speaks prophetically through one of them, helping them know how to respond. And that's the second point I wanna make, that this is the reason we worship. It helps us, worship helps us respond to God's grace. And this is how God tells them in the text to respond. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. This is an incredible story. What are they to do? Just stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord on their behalf. And this, this too, I wanna say, is how we respond, that see the salvation of the Lord on our behalf. We can't earn this. This is not our battle. Remember, but God's. And so there are two ways I think we can view worship. We can, you see, we can view worship, we can think of it like a task. It's something we have to add to our schedule. God wants us to go to church on Sunday mornings. He wants us to read and pray our Bibles. He wants us to attend city group. And then worship is just this one more thing that you ask, that God has asked us to do. We just add it onto that list. But when worship becomes the task, it becomes something that we do to earn God's favor. And then it actually becomes about us. And when we view worship like a task, it becomes exhausting. 
we burn out. Why? Because we can't earn God's favor. We can't earn God's joy, peace, and love. So we can view worship like a task, but we can also view worship like a gift. It's something that God has given us, not something we need to do, but something we're invited into. God has poured himself out for us and we get the chance to respond to him with rejoicing. It's the gift of his spirit that enables us to worship. Galatians says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. See, worship is not a task, but a beautiful gift of God. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. What can we do in the light of this, but respond to his grace? So worship helps us recall God's word. It helps us respond to his grace. And finally, I wanna say that worship helps us reflect God. We'll read on. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Koranites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. So here we see the Levites, that priestly people. The Levites, they're worshiping God with a loud voice. And I'd like to say that in doing this, they're leading something called orthodoxy. Now, when I say orthodox, you might be thinking, ah, doctrine, right beliefs. And yes, there's a sort of derivative sense to it of that. But remember, doxa in Greek means praise. And so what are they doing? They are calling, these priests are calling people to right praise. They're leading the people into right praise of God, orthodoxy. And that is what we are made for. This is our missional priestly calling because God has made us in his image and we are to be amplifiers of him into this world. And our greatest task is bringing a chorus of right praise to God. But what has happened? Instead of worshiping God, we have worshiped the things that God has made. We have become cracked and distorted amplifiers, worshiping false gods. You could say, we're singing a different song. Paul Tillich said, the only thing I need to ask about you to understand everything about you is, what do you worship? The only thing I need to ask to understand everything about you is, what do you worship? In other words, what do you give highest value to? Just listen to the songs of our culture. Songs that say over and over again that happiness can be found in romantic relationships, in status, in money. But this is not true. This is a false and it's a lie that is distorting us and it is hurting us. But what do we do? How do, how do we escape this false song? I wanna say, look to Jesus. Jesus who left the rejoicing presence of his father in heaven. And he took on our humanity, suffering the effects of our distortion, our sin. Jesus who took the effect of our false praise on the cross, faced the utter silence of God. The song of heaven in terrible pause. But the silence of death could not hold him. And the power of the spirit, he rose again. And you see, even when we give nothing but false praise, 
Jesus still sang over us. Even when we gave nothing but false praise, Jesus still sang over us. Zephaniah 3 says that the Lord your God rejoices over you with singing. And so now all we have to do is receive that gift. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Jesus is our true and our greater high priest, leading all of creation in a chorus of right praise. And so we sing for him because he first sang over us. We sing for him because he first sang over us. And when we worship, we're caught up into the divine fellowship of God himself, a fellowship of right praise, the eternal song of heaven. Listen to him sing over you. Have you ever heard this? Do you hear the music? It's been said that those who dance are thought mad by those who do not hear the music. Maybe you've stood in church services and thought, all of this is crazy. These people are experiencing something I can't relate to. I'm not buying into it. This, this would never be me. But those who dance are thought mad by those who don't hear the music. Before we sing, we need to first hear God singing over us. For all of us here, worship seems strange if we don't first hear God's song over us, his love for us. I want you to notice this hymn. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on that cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Then sings my soul, my savior God to thee. You see, singing is a response to his gift. And if you're skeptical about Christianity, I would want to say that before you dismiss it, before you dismiss it, ask God to reveal himself to you. Ask him to sing his song over you. Let's go back to our story. Verse 20. And they rose early in the morning and went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, hear me, Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and said, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing in praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Smoutseer, who had come against Judah so that they were rooted. Do you see what is going on here? Remember, those three armies are closing in on Judah, but God had asked them to stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord. So King Jehoshaphat's military strategy is to put the singers, the musicians, the worship leaders up at the front of the army. They're the first line of attack. And can you imagine this? It'd be like all of us going to war and we've, you know, we got our camo on, we got our bazookas. And then up front is Nadine with the microphone and Josiah in his skinny jeans. <laughs> Now, this is a scary thought. <laughs> and they begin to sing. And it's Psalm 136. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. 
Sandra read this psalm at the beginning. You see how fitting it is. Over and over again, it recalls who God is and how he's brought them out of the land to where they are now. And as they sing and worship, what happens? The armies of the enemy begin to destroy each other. You can just imagine their song, trepidatious at first, right? Getting louder and louder and louder until all the enemy is defeated and there is utter silence on the battlefield. You know, I know, I know it's gruesome, but the Bible doesn't hide us from the bloodbath that is history. And so what a victory for the people of God this was. And so here's what I want you to take away this morning. This is the element of worship that we've been building to. What I wanna emphasize is that worship is a weapon. Worship is a weapon. Worship is our fight song. In Colossians 3, Paul is challenging the Colossians to literally put sin to death in their life, to to kill sin. And what's a good way to do this? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving to the Lord. Sing and worship, why? Why? A singing heart is a heart at war with the work of the evil one and the power of sin. There is a real spiritual battle going on and your hearts are the battleground of that battle. A singing heart recalls God's word as it proclaims truth over lives, belief over apathy, and life over death. When we worship, we begin to see the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in this world. And our perspective begins to change. A singing heart also responds to God's grace. When we sing, we see our hearts changed on that battleground. And we see the situation and circumstances outside of change. And finally, a singing heart reflects who God is. When we worship, we proclaim Jesus is Lord, that he is Lord over this city, that he is Lord over any opposition we might be facing, be it in our neighborhood or serving in our city groups. That opposition is not Lord and its word is not final. Jesus is Lord and his word is final. And so how does using worship as a weapon look practically? Remember the Bali Nine. Who were the Bali Nine? They were a group that was caught in 2005 for smuggling about $4 million of cocaine into Indonesia. And all but one of that group in jail had become followers of Jesus. And their lives were completely transformed. And they, in turn, had a transforming effect on other people's lives. And despite protests from around the world, the authorities decided to uphold their death sentence. And when the day came for them to face the firing squad, something extraordinary happened. Those men marched outside and rather than keeping the blindfold on, they took the blindfold off, turned and faced the firing squad. And witnesses said that they recited the Lord's Prayer, they sang Amazing Grace, and they sang the song that we started with. 10,000 reasons. Bless the Lord, O my soul, till it was drowned out with gunfire. And reflecting on the incident, the person who wrote this song said, 10,000 Reasons said this, it tells me that you can face anything in life, if you can face anything in life and still be found with a song of worship on your lips, even a firing squad, you can face anything. Don't let anything steal your worship, not even a firing squad. The opposition is not Lord and its word is not final. Jesus is Lord. Lord. 
and his word is final. Maybe you're sick, or maybe you know someone who's facing cancer. Worship reminds us that cancer is not Lord. Cancer's word is not final. Jesus is Lord, and his word is final. I want to tell you a bit more about my parents' story. My parents had five kids, and when I was five years old, my mother was diagnosed with bone cancer. Four years later, that cancer advanced to stage four, but the fight went on. One day, my dad was reading in the Old Testament, and he came across this passage about King Jehoshaphat's singing army. He shared it with my mom, and singing and praising God became part of the fight for healing. If you had joined my parents on one of those trips back and forth to the hospital, you would have heard them singing this. I will sing unto the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God. This Psalm of David, this was their battle song and it sustained my mother's soul. And when I was 19, we came home and we stood around my mother's bed to sing one last song. We sang, what a day that will be when my Jesus I will see. And ferociously we worship God, embracing the promise of God with us. Cancer did not have the final word. Jesus was Lord and his word was final. And if Jesus is Lord and his word is final over death, how much more over your career, over your wallet, over how you spend your time, over your grades? <sighs> that when we face challenges in these areas, Worship can remind us that the opposition is not Lord, that Jesus is Lord and his word is final. And worship is a weapon because Christ is one. Christ has defeated sin and death. And so know that when you worship, you begin to live out that victory. I wanna end with some applications. Sing with your whole heart. Sing ferociously with your whole heart. Our singing is to Jesus, not to the person on to the right, not to the person on the left. The question is not, or remember who has sung over you, right? It's not the person on the left, it's not the person on the right. Remember who sung over you. He has rejoiced over you with singing. You are loved and accepted by the one who matters most. That's why worshiping God in song isn't simply a nice idea for the musically talented people. The question is not, has God given me a voice? It is, has God given me a song? And boy, has he ever given you a song. So sing it with your whole heart. Half-hearted praise is an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. You know, some Christians, uh, try and, they try and repress their emotions when they sing. They think uh, it, it's more mature to hold back. But the problem is emotionalism, I wanna say, and not emotion. Well, what's a, emotionalism, what is that? It, it's pursuing emotions as an end in and of themselves. It becomes about achieving a feeling rather than giving God glory. However, emotionless singing makes no sense. Love the Lord, it says, with your whole heart, with your whole soul, with your mind. So both your intellect and your emotions, doctrine and devotion, Combine it, sing wholeheartedly. And by this, I don't mean you have to sing loud. It might not be a loud cry of praise. It might be a whispered heart cry. But whatever you do, sing wholeheartedly. And then finally, what is your fight song? Andrew Fletcher said, let me make the songs of a nation 
and I care not who makes it laws. Let me make the songs of a nation, and I care not who writes its laws or makes its laws. What he's saying is that the songs we sing have a more powerful influence on us than law or doctrine. What are you gonna remember from this sermon? Is it really my points? Maybe for a few minutes. It'll be the songs probably that we sing. What is your fight song? What is the song of your life? We talked about earlier her, all of us are worshipers. Everyone is singing something. And we tend to sing songs that we believe will fulfill us. So what is it that you find your strength in? What do you turn to hope for? Is it, is it a song like Jehoshaphat's army saying, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Our culture is singing around us. Will they hear us singing a different song? A song that proclaims Jesus is king, that is life-giving. Will they hear us fulfilling our missional priestly calling as worshipers leading all of creation in a song of right praise? The Christian life is a battle. Lead it with worship. I wanna pray as we go into a time of response. Father, I pray that we'd be lending our lives wholeheartedly and a song of right praise to you because you are worthy. You have done it all for us. You have sung over us. And so we sing for you. I pray that this would be a reality in our hearts in Jesus' name, amen.